Welcome to the fourth Reclamation Society podcast, our very first podcast with a mature rating. Today we're talking about a film that has one of the worst characterizations of a female character that I have seen in a long time, and that is DC Comics' R-rated animated movie, The Killing Joke. We'll also be comparing the film to the comic book of the same name, written by Alan Moore, This film deals with some intense sexual themes, which is why this episode has a mature content rating. As always, if you haven't seen the movie, we will be discussing it in depth, which means there will be spoilers. If you haven't seen the film yet, maybe watch it before you listen to this podcast. Before we jump into our thoughts about the movie, I wanted to thank everyone who has watched Star Wars Rivals, our Star Wars fan film. You guys are amazing. In just two weeks, Star Wars Rivals has over 6,000 views. 128 likes, and only three dislikes. That is so cool. Thank you guys so much. We think this is an important film because we believe it expresses truth. Behind the cool lightsaber fight is a story about the impact that bullying has. So please continue to share it. If you haven't seen it yet, please head over to www.reclamationsociety.org and you can see it there. If you know of another podcast that would like to interview us and talk to us about our film, please let us know as well. Shoot me an email at reclamationsociety at gmail.com and connect me with somebody. I'd love to talk to them about the film. As always, this podcast is made possible by the generosity of Reclamation Society supporters, and we always appreciate your support. For more information on how to give to our nonprofit organization, please visit www.reclamationsociety.org and click on the Give link. Joining me on today's podcast is Tim Posada, who also joined me on our Deadpool podcast. Tim is a film critic and is currently doing his dissertation on superhero movies. He's basically a comic book movie expert, and he's also pretty funny, so he's always a joy to have on the podcast. My name is Jay Shear. I am the director of the Reclamation Society, in addition to being our chief storyteller. And part of the reason I do this podcast is because neuroscience has shown us that stories impact how we understand and interpret the world around us. If you want to know more about that, I recommend reading Lisa Cron's book, Wired for Story. And because this is true, because our brains interpret and understand the world through storytelling, I'm very driven to break down the stories that I watch and read in order to understand what they're telling us is true about the world. The other reason I do this podcast is because I'm a big geek and I love sci-fi, fantasy, and superheroes. So, thank you to Tim for joining me on this podcast, and let's dive into the world of The Killing Joke. And just, again, as a spoiler alert for everybody, we are totally going to spoil this movie. It's almost impossible to talk about it and analyze it without spoiling it. So if you haven't seen it, go see it first. What did you think, Tim? Like, scale of 1 to 10 on the movie side of life, what did you think of the movie? Um, scale of 1 to 10, I think the Rotten Tomatoes score right now for the film is like in the 40s or 20s or something. Uh, it's not very high, and I would probably tend to agree i oof i would probably put it somewhere in the i mean it, if we're just looking at it like the first half hour of the film i would rank that as like a three out of ten and then the 45 minutes that are actually from the killing joke i would put it maybe at like a like a six yep i actually am a hundred percent in agreement with that i think the first 30 minutes or whatever the added footage Um, So, for those of you who haven't seen it but aren't going to see it, uh, there's actually 30 minutes or so of added storyline that is not in the comic. So, just heads up on that. And actually, I think I agree with you. That's where most of the problems for me arise. And so, I'd say it's like maybe a 2 out of 10 for that first 30 minutes. Um, in the context of the entire film, I'm not saying like that, that 30 minutes isn't necessarily a two in and of itself, but as it relates to the film as a whole, um, it causes major problems for me. And then, but like you said, then we get into the actual killing joke story. And in many regards, they told that story pretty well, I thought. Um, and I would agree with you. It's probably in the six or seven range. That yeah. sounds about right. That whole opening, it was completely unrelated. You've got this really dorky, like just mob boss kid with a stupid name <laughs> like was his name what was his uh franz paris or something yeah, like that something like that yeah it was just so dumb and then it's what kills me is that you're watching this and like there's 
if it's supposed to all be related, like you've got Batgirl like doing a voiceover kind of introduction, and then all of a sudden, like in the actual killing joke part of the story, she's not she's a footnote. I know. I so know. Why bring her up? Why make her central just to discard her? It was very, very confusing. And I, I actually, here's a statement I'm going to make. And we'll, as we get into the questions, um, and then you already know why I'm going to make this statement probably, but I think that this movie, not as much the comic, but the movie itself is one of the worst treatments of a female character that I have ever seen, especially in comic book movies. Uh, or comic book shows or books or whatever. Like it's it's really dumb. It's really bad. And like the fact that everybody at Warner Brothers, when they first announced that they were turning the Killing Joke into an animated film, a lot of people were pretty scared because this is a very controversial comic. I mean, the treatment of Barbara in it's pretty bad, and a lot of people know like just how kind of brutal they treat her and how sexually br- like sexually brutal it is in a way that's never done to a male character. And so to do that and then to add to this kind of a storyline to that did not help that. It actually right. made it a lot worse. Exactly. So now breaking the movie from the comic, uh, what would you have said on a scale of 1 to 10 you'd rate the comic? Oh, I mean, the artwork's pretty amazing for it. Yeah, uh, it's a be- it's a beautifully done comic. Um, I even then, like, I know it's supposed to be monumental, and it's known for being monumental because this is where you find that Barbara Gordon um, became paralyzed and would eventually become. Oh my gosh, I'm going to blank on her name. In the- <laughs> or- like, Oracle, right? Thank you, Oracle. Yeah. For some reason, I want to say Overwatch, and I think that's one of the characters from Arrow's name. Um, ah. Yeah, she becomes Oracle, and that's like a huge turning point for the character, and then Oracle's great, but this being the moment that makes that transition is really awkward, especially because Alan Moore has a very, like, especially his older works, he did not treat women well in his comics. Right. I mean, thinking back to, like, even, like, Watchmen, oh my gosh, the treatment of women in that is painfully bad. Like, when you think about that whole era, like, when the best depiction you've got uh, for, for Alan Moore is V for Vendetta, uh, where Evie is actually tortured, and it seems like V actually kind of enjoys the torture in it. It's like, oh, boy. <laughs> this guy has got some weird takes on women. Of course, he has some weird takes on life. I mean, the guy's on record saying that he spits venom on all his movie adaptations, so he's, he's, a, he's an out-there figure. Yes, he is. I heard, actually, that he some, – somewhere somebody played a recording of him saying that he worshipped a uh, snake god of some kind. <laughs> it's just so weird. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, so – I mean, it's it's a visually very, very beautifully done uh, comic. I mean, it's just a single issue. The fact that like they tried to even make a film out of it is kind of audacious, considering how short the actual comic is. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's visually very interesting. I think there's some very fun parts of it, but I mean, the whole Carnies thing. Uh, I don't. But I'm kind of indifferent about the Killing Joke. I know I, I like. And I've read most of the most of the big Batman stories, and I, this one just doesn't do anything for me. <laughs> yeah, I tend to agree. I, I I agree also on your characterization of Moore. I, I do really like some of Moore's works because of some of the themes that he's working with. But you're right. I think the challenge, and actually um, part of the challenge, even for uh, me as a producer and a writer and a podcaster and a storyteller is, you know, I would love to get, um, you know, we're going to talk a lot about how this movie represents and the comic as well represents females, but we're two males talking about it. Right. So I acknowledge the fact that, that, that has some hypocrisy to it. I actually looked for, um, a female to be a part of the show, but in my friend group, um, you know, there's not a lot of people that would want to talk about this particular um, movie or comic book. Uh, so I acknowledge that, but at the same time, I think that you have to have a sensitivity to it. You have to have. I almost feel like sometimes, as we're as creators and as storytellers, we we sort of wrap ourselves up into our own little world, and so we are exploring things that matter to us, and we 
as we do that, we put things into our stories that are impactful to the way we view the world. But by doing so, you also have the chance of skewing the truth of the matter because of the way other people people feel about your story or the characters in your story. And I think that that's true in this case as well. Let's go ahead and transition into our questions. So the first question, as always, is what does the killing joke tell us is true about spirituality? And as many Batman stories, um, there is not any sort of uh, overlay of spirituality. Spirituality is not discussed, so to speak. So what I try and do is I try and draw out themes and in this case, as, in the, as is the case with most Batman stories, particularly those that involve Joker, we have this idea of harmony, order, chaos, and specifically in The Killing Joke, insanity. So I thought we'd start out by analyzing the worldviews of each character. So why don't you tell me about how you think the Joker in this story views the world well it's interesting and i think i'm right about this i was trying to figure out like i wanted to make comparisons between both uh the film and the comic just to kind of see what was added to it and that whole sequence with the trial that was added right yeah i believe that is added i believe you're correct about that so to that so that to me was kind of a primary difference i mean for the killing joke the point was just kind of this general chaos and lunacy whereas the film seems to be making a pretty uh, concise point uh, where the Joker sees himself as no different than Batman. Right. And um, just kind of coming to a different conclusion, but often using the same kind of means throughout. Yes. Yes. And I think that is, that is like the central tenet of the movie, right? It's kind of like the Joker is testing a hypothesis which is that anyone can become insane. Um, and I think he, he arrives at that place because, and this is sort of instrumental, I think, is that the Joker's worldview is shaped by his experience with his wife's death and his, you know, she's, she's pregnant at the time, so his wife and child's death. And it's an accident. Yeah. So a we con- freak accident. Yeah, totally like a, freak accident. And I think we contrast that with the Batman and Bruce and his parents' death, which is a reversal. So it's not actually wife and child. It's actually parents. And they're killed by someone else's actions. And so it's sort of like this, the Joker is trying to test the experiment, but the funny thing about is he actually tests the experiment all wrong because he doesn't actually add accidental or freak accidents to either um, Jim or Bruce's life. He actually is the impetus for these things happening. Um, So he almost doesn't even set up his hypothesis very well, but... As we see in many other cases, the Joker's worldview is that the entire world is a joke. The, the thing's a big, it's a big ruse. Everyone's falling for this, this idea that order can exist. And his whole view is order cannot exist and chaos rules. And why would you think any different? Right. Um, and I think that, uh, to, so I would say that Joker is anti-science because to him, why measure anything? Right, he just says it's all chaos. So who cares? And even that, and I think even Joker would say, and now I'm getting really, really, really psychoanalytical here. But I think he would even say, "What's the point of science when you're going to measure something, but you could measure it for years and years and years and tell you, and it and it could tell you the wrong outcome." And I think we, I mean, we even see that we at one time as a species, for lack of a better word, um, we thought that the world was flat. Right. I mean, so we lived with that belief system for a very long period of time in our history. And Joker's kind of like saying, yeah, you idiots, like the whole thing's chaos. And even if you do gain some information, what good does it do you? Because it's probably going to be proven wrong in the future. 
So that seems to be Joker's worldview um, in my understanding. What would you – anything you'd add to that? Um, I think the one kind of thing that I would add would be like when you think about this, uh, there's a really great um, article in the journal Jump Cut by Todd McGowan. And he talks about how one of the fascinating things – and he, you know, he specifically writes an article about uh, The Dark Knight, the film – and he talks um, about kind of how we have two distinct ages that superhero stories often draw upon. There's the heroic age and then the age of law. And he talks about how in the heroic age, often drawing upon figures like Hercules who roamed a land that was on the verge of chaos where sole heroic figures had a job to kind of bring about order. Uh, such figures – he then – McGowan then makes the argument that such figures cannot exist – within a lawful society because a lawful society deems those heroic actions illegal Mm. because you have to have everybody following the law. And so when you think about that courtroom scene with the Joker, you know, you've got him say, you've got the Joker kind of, antagonizing Gordon, saying, what would you say about somebody who takes uh, the situation into his own hands and uh, beats people up to get what he wants? And Gordon's completely thinking he's talking about Joker, but then, in fact, he's actually talking about Batman because Batman is also a figure who is beyond the law. And so that's pretty pivotal to the Joker's worldview is that he sees... Regardless of what Batman intends, he sees them both as the same because they are both outside the law. And the moment you slip outside the law, you slip into that chaos. That's awesome. That's a great analysis. Thanks for bringing that resource too. That's outstanding. Mm-hmm. So now we get now we transfer into Batman's worldview. So what's your take on Batman's worldview? <clears throat> what's uh, what's interesting about this story is that this is one of those interesting moments where I mean normally when you meet Batman I mean he's a pretty straightforward figure uh, he's the kind of guy who just uh, I mean you've got the classic like criminal mind is very simple the criminal mind is uh, you know just about corruption whereas here he's kind of come to a point of exhaustion where he's like I don't want to kill you. And he has a very sincere conversation where he wants to believe in hope. And that's rare for the character. He's normally pretty much all business, like, let's make this happen. But here, for once, he says, I want to help you. He doesn't see, like, going to Ark, like, throwing Joker into Arkham Asylum as a good fix unless he will actually get help. And so that's kind of the first time you, I, like, I'd ever seen a story where he really thinks about the concept of actually. Not just reacting to situations, but making an active choice to want to help something get better. Yeah, that's a great point. I hadn't thought of that, but that is true. I mean, we do see him in the killing joke, even when he, in the very, um, in the sort of opening sequence when he walks in and and we learn that he's not actually talking to the Joker, um, which the art in that sequence is amazing, um, and he's really reaching out to him, saying like, "Hey, we're, one of us is going to end up killing the other one, and we're or we're both going to end up dead." So he is he is taking a far different approach, where you don't see a lot of mercy from Batman, except in the case that he doesn't tend to in most Batman stories, though they break this rule sometimes. He doesn't tend to. Um, believe in killing people but everything else it's kind of like i can beat them up i can put them in jail they can just sit there and rot for all i care so yeah you're right this is a different this is a slightly different take because he's actually trying to rehabilitate the joker to a certain degree right um i do i think it's interesting to talk about batman's worldview and even especially as we talk about it here um in the last podcast i did with daryl we talked about batman begins and we characterize Batman as ultimately he's he's an he seems to be an agnostic thinker because he takes on the desire for order and harmony. Um, Daryl brought up that word of harmony. He's trying to bring harmony to Gotham, um, but he's doing that without and and it doesn't it doesn't believe like he feels that God is a central character in that happening. Rather, he needs to make it happen. And if he can root out the corruption, 
uh, almost because God isn't helping with it, then um, he can then bring Gotham to a better state. So as a character, he does tend to have a very high moral standard. Um, Contrast that perhaps with, as we talked about, the Deadpool movie. Deadpool's moral standard is not high, and he's agnostic. Batman's moral standard is actually fairly high, but he is also seems to be agnostic through his worldview. Mm-hmm. So it's just an interesting take on the character, but this is a different, like you said, it's a different setup because now he's, he's actually caring about what happens to the Joker and, and what happens to himself along that path. That's, that's insightful. So what about Gordon? How about Gordon? What's Gordon's worldview in this book? Um, Gordon goes through a pretty big, I mean, it's a pretty, it's a pretty simplistic change. It's pretty much one point, like even, uh, instead of like slipping into madness as the Joker thinks, um, he sees pictures of his daughter, um, kind of just kind of completely objectified, but rather than slip into a revenge kind of point of view, he says to Batman, we bring him in by the books. We need to show him that he can't win. And that's a, that's a pretty classic, like uh, that kind of a statement. It's kind of one of those, if you sink this low, then the terrorists win kind of a point of view. Right. Uh, and that's definitely what you get from that. Like, even though he loves his daughter, um, this will not break him and cause him to abandon his beliefs. It's probably the most uh, Kantian thing that happens in this whole story. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And that's a great take. I I agree. I had the exact same notes written down for Gordon. Um, What about Barbara? What is Barbara's worldview? Oh, that's a little more kind of complicated, I guess. Like if we look at the first half hour, you don't really get the sense of who she is as a person, like why she's out there, like fighting crime. I mean, they pretty much seem to sum everything up to she's got a crush on Batman. (laughs) And then when that gets awkward because they sleep together, she just quits. So I didn't like the way she's depicted here is it's a character who doesn't really know what she wants and then doesn't want to then kind of continue to find out if she really cares about justice because it's awkward. Exactly. And I, I had, I've had the same thoughts. And as you talked about it, one of the things that comes to mind is that she really does feel like in the first 30 minutes, this new added portion of the movie, she feels like she's actually just living for the thrill of the chase, so to speak. Um, there's not a whole lot of depth into why she's doing what she's doing. It doesn't even seem like she's necessarily morally opposed or disturbed about the things that, um, like you said, Paris Franz or whatever his name is or whatever, whatever guy's name is. It's a weird name. Um, she doesn't seem to be particularly morally opposed to it. It's just sort of like, I want to prove myself to, to Bruce ultimately. Yeah. So it is a weird worldview. I do think that as one of the things that's interesting about the killing joke and the, the larger character of Barbara as this, uh, this particular event with her, um, we'll call it a sexual assault with Joker and this humiliation and this, uh, the fact that she becomes paralyzed I think it is a catalyst for her character, and I you see a lot of maturity in her in other stories. Doesn't doesn't really appear here, but in other stories, you do start to see her view of the world become more mature, and she becomes very wise through this process. And it's sort of this characterization of someone um, making it through a tragedy very effectively. But I don't think you see that in this inherent work. Yeah, because she's not important to this story, which is weird because she gets paralyzed. And out of all the characters in the story, the outcome has the most influence on what will happen to her as a character. Yeah, that's exactly right. It, it, it It does feel very unfinished. And as we'll talk about in a minute, the fact that they tacked on the beginning 
it just throws a whole new wrench into the equation, but we'll get there. Um, how does your own personal worldview, the Tim Posada worldview, shape your understanding of harmony, order, chaos, and insanity? Hmm. Separate from uh, the Killing Joke. <laughs> yeah. So the Killing Joke seems to be playing with the idea. I'll set it up a little bit uh, more complete for you because I realize that's like a really broad question. But the Killing Joke seems to set up um, I, the hypothesis that lunacy is based off of the chaos of the world and that right thinking or at least moral thinking or ordered thinking or or thinking that involves harmony however you want to define that is all based off um trying to find order even in the chaos and so it is to the the clash of two worldviews that are in direct opposition to one another Batman, who's trying to bring harmony to a corrupt city, and Joker, who's saying the whole thing is a joke. Why you even bother? I'm just going to show you that chaos. I'm going to be the embodiment of chaos to to combat your uh, false sense of order in the world. And so I, I just wonder, as you as you take a look at those two worldviews, how do you interpret them? And and for you, as you interpret the world around you, how do you interpret that? Right. Well, I was kind of. I come back to like a few things whenever I think about like, for example, um, whenever Christopher Columbus Day comes around, I've always got this question like in my head, like, I mean, Christopher Columbus did some pretty horrible stuff. (laughs) Right. Um, And, you know, there's always like that argument people have where they'll say, yeah, but he was just kind of a figure of the time. You can't really hold that against him. And I think in my head, every that that makes no sense to me. Like even when slavery was wildly popular in this country, there were still people who knew it was wrong. Mm -hmm. So it's not like morality has completely changed along the way to this kind of extent. We know what's right or wrong. It just depends on how much we want to listen to it. And so when I think about um, harmony or chaos, maybe this is the, the Kantian inside me where I do believe like over, like throughout history, it, things are not as arbitrary as we'd want to believe. Like uh, things have never been that ambiguous. There are still some things that are universally wrong. Right. And to me, while other things change, like when I think about like, and this happens all the time. If you ever see a time, time travel story, somebody goes back in time and say, they always end up getting captured or somebody gets murdered right away because there's this implication in these stories that like we're doing a lot better in a law abiding society now than back then when law seemed to be up to whoever wielded a sword the best. Right. Um, It's always a bad stereotype of some crap movie. Um, But there is, there is right and wrong in some senses, even though I think we've kind of been really terrible over history of determining what those, what the, what the top priorities should be. And so I don't think things are as crazy insane as they are. I think the Joker is a very wonderfully poetic character. Um, but I've never seen him as a character who resonates with real life. Um, just, he just becomes a wonderful kind of mirror to Batman's obligation to order. And so for me, I would say that kind of uh, worldview, um, I'm sure people do have it, but I think that when people say like, you know, Joker actually has a good understanding of what reality is like, I'm like, uh, no, I think the, the appeal of a character like the Joker is that we don't understand that kind of insanity. Exactly. Yeah, no, I think that that's a good take. Um, I think it's interesting how our own worldviews are are shaped, and I don't mean to get preachy in what I'm about to say, but as I try to think about, I do think that Batman and Joker are set up very well in the world of in the in the DC universe to be really the hero and the villain, and this in this idea that we can't bring as much order and harmony as we'd like because there is some level of chaotic events in the world that we don't fully understand. But at the same time, we must try and bring harmony and order to the world because if we don't, um, there, then a lot of goodness will be, will be basically taken out of the world. Um, and so for me, as I think about this, 
you know, the first question I ask is, was the universe, or if you want to call it a multiverse or whatever you believe it to be, was it created, did it come about in harmony or chaos? And there's lots of theories on that even in the world, right? You have the intelligent design theorists, and then you basically have the kind of more chaotic uh, atoms colliding kind of creation. Um, the second question I think is, is the universe in harmony uh, or chaos today? So, you know, the, the, the worldview that I've sort of always ascribed to is that I believe that the world was created in harmony, but that the harmony was broken. And so we talk about, if you look at the Bible and you look at the Adam and Eve story, and whether that's actual history or whether it's allegorical, I don't even care to argue about. But what I believe is that it indicates that there was order and harmony and that that was intentional but that an event brought about chaos. Um, And of course, in the biblical narrative, that would be called sin entering the world. And, and and what I mean by that too is, is it's not like evil didn't exist before that, but it actually started to affect humanity. And I think for me personally, like you just mentioned the people that say like Joker's got a really good view on the world. And and that always puzzles me. It's kind of like the people who, you know, root for the dark side of the force to take over. Um, I just believe that, you know, we have as human beings a desire for harmony. And yet we can see that chaos exists. We see that there are, even in our world today, we see that there are earthquakes, that there are, you know, tsunamis. And there's a certain amount of that that you could, you could argue, well, there's order in those things because that's how the world is shaped. But in a certain degree for each human being, that's very chaotic because those things are not planned and you don't know that some of those things are going to happen. And so I think as human beings, and the reason why I resonate so much with Batman and Joker and and their struggle is that we have to come to terms with those things. Even if we desire comfort and harmony and yet destruction and chaos are sort of surrounding us. They're all around us. In fact, as we look at the the political situation right now, um, it's very, very chaotic. And politics is supposed to bring order to our world. So I like the fact that they've set up these two characters as being so um, pivotal to the world of Gotham and so pivotal to each other. And I think that as we, I like the exploration of the chaos versus the harmony, because I, I believe that in my worldview, I see both things. And for me, it's a struggle to come up with, well, why is that? Why do those things exist? And how can I um, live appropriately given that context? Right. Anything else on worldview and personal worldview versus the story's worldview? No, I'm feeling pretty good about it. Okay. All right, so now we're going to do a major break, and we'll go from that particular section to the new section, which is what does the movie tell us is true about human nature? And I think in this movie, when we've talked a lot about this already because of how much um, human nature and spirituality um, are kind of synonymous in this particular film and this particular comic book, but this concept where Joker says... All it takes is one bad day. What's your take on that? Yeah, I, I um, that was a pretty like that was really fun. Like the way the the monologue kind of that went down. You've got Joker saying one bad day turns us crazy, and then he is obviously Joker and Batman don't know anything about each other's past. Um, you know, we the reading public or we the viewing public know more about it than they do about each other. But like you've got like the Joker saying like I had a bad day and I know you did. You wouldn't be doing this. You wouldn't be wearing that if you hadn't had one had a bad day. And it just takes one bad day to change us. And then obviously the counterpoint to that is uh, Gordon who had that bad day and didn't go insane. He didn't uh, revert to chaos. I mean, they keep that theme going in so many cases. You've got, uh, I mean, even here, so here it's the Joker who had the bad day and went crazy in the Dark Knight. It was Two-Face who had that one bad day and um, all of a sudden decided to embrace chance. Hmm. So, but then, you know, I, I, there's a little bit of satisfaction you get from that moment where Batman says, maybe it's just you. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. 
And it's an, it's very interesting. I mean, this I mean the entire concept, like, the entire point of this is um, the classic dilemma over nature versus nurture. Are we simply a slave to circumstances? Or do, is there something greater that allows us to take control of our lives? And that we're never going to have a very good answer to that. Uh, people keep debating it for years. I mean, I come from a cultural studies background, and in cultural studies, we taught we read a lot of Karl Marx, and the big thing is always um, what changes us. I mean, what influences who we are. You know, if you like watch like a classic sci-fi film, there's always something within the human spirit that allows us to you know press on. Uh, that's a wonderfully kind of American capitalist point of view. But then counterpoint that to something like uh, the phrase, uh, one of the quotes from Karl Marx where he says, it is not the consciousness of men that determines their being, but on the contrary, it is their social being that determines their consciousness. Now, in short, what that means is it's not who you are inside that determines what kind of person you are. It's where you are that determines who you are. Hmm. And so we've got these classic dilemmas. Now, is any one of them 100% true uh, or false? I, 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 there's no way to determine that. I mean, we have to be slaves to our circumstances in some ways. I mean, there's a reason that I don't like country music. It's because I was raised a certain way and I don't enjoy it. Uh, in the same way that there is a reason I am more prone to enjoying the arts because my parents really encouraged me to get involved in that. So I have to acknowledge that there are circumstances beyond my control that do influence who I am. But I guess the question becomes how all-encompassing is that belief? How much do our surroundings affect who we are as people? Yep. I, I think uh, the one thing I would add to that is, and I mentioned this earlier, I think the Joker tests his hypothesis completely wrong. Um, and I kind of got into it earlier, so I'll just repeat some of that. The thing that he's trying to test is to test whether or not sanity can be based, can be altered. And he's suggesting that anyone's sanity can be altered. All it takes is one bad day. And his own sanity was altered um, based on two primary factors, the one being that his wife and child were killed in a horrific, completely freak accident, and also that he was making poor moral choices in terms of going to help the mobsters rob um, the chemical plant. And then being chased by Batman, he falls into the vat of chemical uh, fluid and ends up sort of losing it in that. So he does have some of his own personal choices that are influenced by these mobsters who tell him he can't back out. But at the same time, he's also influenced by this completely random, uh, comp nobody's fault freak accident. Right. And I think his hypo the way he tests his hypothesis is, is actually far too planned. So what's interesting about what he sets up is that he says, I'm going to steal away, I'm going to kidnap Barbara Gordon. And as I do so, I'm going to then kidnap Jim Gordon and putting Barbara in her, uh, in the state that she's in and psychologically torturing uh, Gordon and Bruce will cause them to go insane as well, just like I went insane. Right. The problem with that is that that's very planned and it's very purposeful in its intention. And his change was brought about largely by this freak accident death. So I think he's testing a bad hypothesis, but I think that, that, exploring his hypothesis like you you brought up is actually sort of part of what we do as human beings we test these things and we go how did that happen and we ask ourselves that question and then try to figure it out yeah. um so I, I think it's interesting but i think he goes about it sort of wrong if you yeah. will and another thing too is that like there are some interesting differences between uh the film and the comic too um and the comic you know when you, we first meet uh the joker as like he had just gotten back from a job and he blows up 
at his wife and then apologizes about it. And so it's like, okay, so there's actually a bit of rage in him to begin with. And then later when Batman's coming towards him, he says, don't come near me or I'll jump. There is nothing in the comic that shows him tripping and then falling into the toxic waste. Hmm. So he consciously chooses to jump. It's not a freak accident there that happens. It's a conscious choice on his part to get away from Batman by jumping. Right, right. And so that shows, I mean, the film seemed like to really be tied to like, to change him into a much more sympathetic figure to to show that like it really was a bad day. Whereas in the comic, it's part a bad day, part this guy was unhinged to begin with. Yep, that's true. So what would you say? What, do you think that so, that we can be changed by one bad day? Uh, I, I, I wouldn't even know how. I have never had one of those days, and God willing, I never will. Um, I think that everybody probably has a breaking point and we are often very good at judging people who found their breaking point when we have not been there ourselves and so it's really difficult to ever know for certain unless you've been in that kind of a situation yeah i I agree i think that there's there's both and right like you can definitely overcome your tragedy and you can definitely succumb to your tragedy. Yeah. I was I was talking to my to my wife yesterday because we were talking about um, we were exploring this anxiety disorder that this lady had written about, and it was a very debilitating anxiety dis, anxiety disorder. And we were I was reflecting on, you know, they've done we have enough research to show that a majority of the population who is addicted to drugs or addicted to alcohol or pick your addiction, it's largely caused by emotional trauma. Um, And in fact, so much so that we've even seen research coming out of like the Vietnam War where people who were addicted to hardcore drugs while in Vietnam, when they came back, the assumption was, well, you're addicted, you're going to stay wanting to craving those drugs. And actually, that was reversed because the emotional trauma was taken away. And I think it's, the reason I bring it up is because I think that one of the things that this story is doing, it's actually starting to show us and try and give us some sympathy for the Joker. And I think part of the issue is that the Joker... It's very difficult to be sympathetic towards him because he's just completely given in. He's not he's not trying to fight it. You said that earlier. Like he's not turning away from this pattern of life anytime soon. So humanizing him I think is a good idea, but in real life, I think a lot of the people that we see who are addicted to something or they've gone through a tragedy. They're emotionally very traumatized. And sometimes they do let the chemicals take over to the point where, you know, I don't, I don't think anybody's past the point of no return, but it's hard to see a return because of the chemical influences. Um, but I do think that that's worth exploring and talking about in society because I think too often we tend to make someone a villain because of their behavior when in reality even their behavior I'm not I'm not going to suggest it wasn't 100% their fault they could have leaned into something else as opposed to leaning into the to the chemical um or whatever it was but that was brought about by emotional trauma that we were ineffectual as a society at helping them through right so and I do think that there's actually uh, there's a point in this story where if the Joker had had Batman saying, you know, we we shouldn't do this, we shouldn't keep doing this. If there had been that point in his life, if the, if Batman when he when he approached Joker at, in the chemical plant had said, "Hey, look, I realize you're in a bad place, and I'd like to help you out," as opposed to becoming more showing himself as more of a violent character, we might not have Joker. So, yeah, it's an interesting thing that I think it's something that we should we should think about as a culture. So now let's transition into our third question. And this is for those of you who have stuck with us and you've been listening this whole time. This is where it gets uh, very 
disturbing for me personally because of the way that the movie treats relationships. And so as we look at what is the movie telling us is true about relationships, both in terms of gender and sexuality, um, I think this movie has some really weird things to say. So we'll, we'll, we'll break it up into the comic and the movie and we'll explain some of the differences here. But what about your take, Tim, specifically starting with the comic book? I mean, when you think about like just the depiction of Barbara is just such a minor part of the story. I mean, it's just there to motivate the two male characters, Gordon and Bruce. And so like she is Barbara's character is a tool in this story just there to kind of push forward other people's story arcs, uh, which is a very peculiar choice. And so it really, to me, undercuts like a lot of the comic too. Like when you look at how it ends, you know, you've got Joker saying like, I can't do it. I've gone too far. But then he tells a joke and there's that one moment where, you know, like there's a romance moment almost where Joker and Batman start laughing at the same joke together. (laughs) And it's like in any other story, this would be kind of a fun way to end it. But in a story where Barbara gets paralyzed, a huge key character gets paralyzed. It's like, really? We're just kind of supposed to ignore that happened and just, uh, you know, enjoy this moment between these two characters, never returning to her character. Yep. It's just, it's, to me, it's bad writing. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, I do think that this is, now, as I, as I start to criticize, I, I do want to say that as a writer, as a male writer, this is such an easy trap to fall into. And I'm, and I'm trying to learn to not fall into the trap by creating exercises for myself where as I write a character, I will actually say to myself, oh, they often start as male characters, because that's what I identify with first, right? And so what happens is I write the character, and then, and then afterwards I go, why is that a male character? And I think that that's important. It's an important exercise, whether you're a female writer who's writing male characters or whether you're a male writer writing female characters. I think those are important questions to start asking because the reality is, yes, there are stereotypical gender roles. Yes, there are um, stereotypical ways of people behaving and acting, depending on their gender identity or, or whatever, what have you. But that doesn't mean that we should accept those things as true across the board. And quite frankly, the more interesting characters are the ones who are not normal um, and who are not stereotypical. And we have to have some stereotypical characters, but maybe those stereotypical characters are only being used to showcase the interesting characters that we have um, available to us as well. So, I will say that I fall into the same trap frequently, but so Barbara is used as you described as a means by which to emotionally disturb Jim Gordon and uh, Bruce Wayne. There's really no other reason to have her in this story. Yeah. It's just, it's all for the men. (laughs) Yeah. It's all for the men. Um, and, and I think, while I think that that's a bummer and while I think that it, what it does is it tends to make this a story that is purely targeted towards males because I don't think it has as much to offer a female reader because it'd be harder to identify with some of the other characters. And not, not that you can't, you can definitely identify with, with Batman as female or Joker or whoever you want to. I'm not suggesting that. I'm just saying it's not as easy to identify because, um, of the way that the characters are portrayed. I don't necessarily, I wouldn't necessarily say there's no place for that in the writing world. I think we need to have more examples of good female characters. Um, but as a means of which those two characters are put in an emotionally disturbing situation, I'm okay with the usage of it. I'm just not thrilled by it because I'd love to see her character fleshed out more. Right. Um, I think for me, uh, the problem I have is the contradiction mm. that occurs. Like we don't see this for, for male characters. Yeah. Like true. when is, when 
have I, I can't think of a situation where a male superhero has ever been like sexually assaulted. I I can't think of one either. And it's it doesn't really happen, and so there's a clear double standard that it's okay to sexualize one, but we don't do it the other way around. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that that's that's not a good characterization. You know, I think that if you were to look at statistically, and I don't have the statistics in front of me, so I apologize if this is just ignorant, but I do believe that there's probably a higher propensity for sexual assault to occur to the female population than it does to the male population. Mm -hmm. But I think that the problem is, is that we can't only tell stories um, in one way. We have to tell stories in other ways. We have to tell other stories and other people's stories. Yeah. The closest thing I can think of in the Batman universe is that there are some stories where, you know, uh, where Robin is like beat to the point of death or, uh, now there's so many Robins now I have lost track of how all of them have lived and died. <laughs> um, but I do know that at least one of the Robins has died, right? Uh, yeah, that was Jason Todd. Yeah. Perfect. And he came back, right? After the Lazarus pit, he came yeah, back. Yeah, he as... came back. Uh, Ra's al Ghul put him in the Lazarus pit, and he came back and became the Red Hood. Yeah, exactly. And I, knew, I do know that, that that characterization was used to emotionally traumatize Batman to a degree. Um, but, like you said, there's a lot more of it being skewed the other direction. And I think the biggest problem... And this is where I'm going to transition into the movie a little bit because now we've talked about the comic book and the portrayal of Barbara in the comic book. This is where the movie just kills it for me. And, I, and you told me a story that I'd like to have you tell on this podcast about the, the storytellers. But here's the reason why the movie kills it for me. Because in the setup of The Killing Joke, Barbara is not a main character. She is sexually assaulted by the Joker, or at least that there is the implication that she's sexually assaulted, um, enough to traumatize her her father. And that's just a one-note character. It's a one-off. It's a basic characterization. It's a, it's a gimmick, almost, to be honest. It's not about a character. It's more about a gimmick. The problem I have is that the movie then says, oh, well, we're going to add a, a pre... We'll call it a prequel because, quite frankly, the two stories are not even hardly connected at all. Wherein we take a deeper look at Barbara. It's almost like the storyteller said, wow, they didn't really do Barbara justice. The problem is, is that they completely kill any sort of redemption of Barbara that they could have included in the beginning of the story. So... Give me your take on that. I'll stop and let you respond first. Yeah. Uh, oh, do you want me to tell the story? Oh, yeah. Please do. Please okay. Do. Okay. So here's, here's the story, and I think this really taps into, like, what, like from the beginning where this goes wrong. Um, this is a great story that actually uh, I and I picked up. It's an article called The Killing Joke Movie is a Disaster Right Down to Its Comic-Con Panel. And so during the Comic-Con panel, uh, they were – during the Q&A section, everybody was – continually asking like uh, they showed a screening of the film and like they were asking how do you make the claim that Barbara Gordon is a strong female character and uh, apparently the writers just kept saying no we still see her as a strong female character and then a uh, bleeding cool reporter Jeremy Conrad then blurted out yeah by using sex and then pining for Bruce to which uh, one of the co-screenwriters Brian Azarella responded with, want to say that again, pussy? <laughs> and that just kind of, that's horrifying that that happened. Um, it's wildly unprofessional that you would even say that to a person, but the, that you're that okay using such sexist language, and you're then trying to at the same time make an argument that you wrote a story that was, in, was empowering for a female character. Uh, there is a breakdown in your language that betrays your purpose. I mean, it's this is one of the most kind of insulting depictions of a super heroine I have ever seen. I could not agree more. And so I'm glad I'm glad you tell that story because that story is so indicative 
of why this movie just falls off the rails with that prequel part of it. Yeah, it's and what what kills me is that there's this whole dialogue where um, you know, Batgirl wants to go after the Franz Paris dude, and then Batman says, No, you can't do it. She's like, No, I'm ready for this kind of thing. And then he goes into this monologue about how you've never been pushed to the edge, you've never seen the abyss. Basically, she's never like experienced the same kind of trauma that he's experienced and come back for, and he's now more in control of himself. And then at the end, she says, like, I saw the abyss. And apparently the abyss for her was, you know, feeling awkward about a one-night stand. <laughs> There's correct. something asinine about that that basically says Bruce was able to, you know, withstand the personal trauma of losing both parents. He's been able to kind of maintain his moral code despite everything the Joker has tried to do, everything every other villain has tried to do to him. And yet for her, all it took was her one bad night, apparently, was regretting sex. Yep, exactly. That is ridiculous and wildly condescending. Yeah, so... Here, so I'm going to walk through a step-by-step step of what actually happens in the movie. So we see Barbara, and she's pursuing this this gangster mobster figure. And like you said, as she gets more involved and as he recognizes that she's pursuing him, he starts to become infatuated with her. Batman then gives advice to Barbara, such to the effect that you're getting in too deep with this. Even though it's largely actually the enemy their enemy, the villain, this mobster guy, who's the one who's getting too deep into it. Batman suggests that somehow Barbara is getting too involved in this. So one, Batman is letting this villain, this mobster and his view of Barbara somehow, somehow uh, Barbara is responsible for that, which there's no indication that that's true. Um, as Barbara continues to pursue this character, that infatuation grows, and Batman continually reprimands Barbara for being involved at all and keeps telling her that she needs to step aside so that he can handle it. So, very belittling from Batman's case, and, and you brought up his rationale for that, that he somehow is superior because of what he's had to go through. She somehow determines that manipulating him through sex is a good idea. So she has sex with him. And that's that's actually not an assumption. That's actually said. The movie tells us that. Um, confided because the only homosexual character in the film just happens to be her friend that they can talk about sex about, which is also a completely stereotypical character. Mm-hmm. And... Then we see her basically, like you said, lose it um, so that she approaches the abyss or whatever. And all that you're given is a portrayal of a female character who is emotionally unstable, not able to see things clearly the way that they should be seen because she's emotionally unstable, and proceeds to have sex with a father figure during this period of instability yeah and go ahead skeevy because she has always kind of been off and on i think with dick grayson yes which makes sense because they're age appropriate this is the kind of skeevy that only hollywood writers would come up with (laughs) that's right it's just so oh it's so shady the way this works because like the age gap between the two is supposed to be pretty substantial And I'm just so tired of this decades apart age gap where the man is much older. It's just, it's, oh, Freud must be rolling in his grave every time this happens. (laughs) I like having you on the podcast because you make me laugh. So, so this is, this is, I I completely agree with you, 100%. Um, and, And then it only gets worse because why? Because this movie ends with her learning. That she was that she got too emotionally unstable. So basically, you acted like a stereotypical female. You had to be. You had to get all of this emotion out somehow by having sex with your father figure. And then, this is this is I, this is the message that just makes me cringe. Batman basically tells her 
you need to be really careful in how you act because there's this weird sex freak who's chasing you. Okay, Batman, I realize that I'm acting inappropriately and somehow that's, that's why this guy is chasing me. Except that a weird freak shows up at your door, uncontrolled by you, shoots you, paralyzes you, and then rapes you. Yeah. So basically there's no redemption for this character's way of behaving. There's no development in her character. It's just it's just a completely wasted opportunity and a very poor, very, very poor addition to the story. If you're trying to empower Barbara, you just did the opposite. Yeah, this story undermined, and the film actually makes it worse too. Think about, because in the comic book, there's an argument for maybe Joker didn't rape her. Right. Uh, in the film, they kind of add to that because, you know, you've got Batman going around the city trying to hunt down clues about where the Joker is. And then the jo- and then he comes across the prostitute and say, yeah, he normally comes here right when he gets out. And they're like, but he didn't come here this time around. I mean, you'd think he'd want to. Maybe he found another girl. Yep. And so they make that thing that might have happened pretty concretely yeah not only was she paralyzed and then had terrible photos taken of her but she was also probably raped yeah and that's and that's part of it that just tacks on it just adds on to oh, this it makes it so much worse yeah it makes it so <laughs> much worse because in the in the comic while joker is doing all these horrible things like we talked about it is for the purpose of emotionally disturbing Jim and Bruce. But now as you as you as you amp that up and you concentrate more and more on that in the film. Now it becomes more about Barbara, but Barbara's not a redeemed character. She's not a fully fleshed out character. Um she's really she doesn't even gain wisdom. I mean, we know she does in the long term outside of this story because she becomes Oracle. Yeah. But she doesn't in this film. Yeah. She's she doesn't matter by the end. Like the first half hour is her. She has a voiceover. Like she's supposed to be important. Like what I don't understand about this is like they could have just as easily created this film as two separate films. You know, they've done that before when they put out one of these films, they make one of them shorter and another one longer. Uh, and so there was one that was only like maybe an hour long. Oh, it was uh, the Batman year one animated film. Mm. That was only, um, an hour long. And then they had a 20 minute long, you know, kind of story about Catwoman that they did too. I don't see why, like they just didn't do this as two separate films. Cause they are completely separate from each other. Yep. And it would have been cool if we actually would have seen, what would have been really cool is if they had actually taken the approach of, we're going to follow Barbara's story as she deals with the tragedy that has occurred to her. That would have been a better approach than that whole half hour. Exactly. Exactly. Like if you had actually focused on her and her response, like maybe even kind of popped in like, hmm, when does Oracle come about kind of a thing. That would have been when, – when they first came out with this, the initial response from the studio was like, we're going to respond to some of the controversies of the original. Yep. Yeah, they did. They made it worse. <laughs> exactly. They made it way worse. And it's so fascinating to me because the voice talent – for Barbara, and I cannot remember her name off the top of my head, um, but she's phenomenal. She does great voice work as Barbara, and I can just imagine, you know, as an uh, as an actor, cause as I've worked with actors, I don't think if I can especially uh, think this is true of voice actors, probably. Although I'd have to ask one, um, you probably don't realize all of what's going on because you're not you're not filming these scenes. Um, like with other people, usually you just go into a booth and you record your lines. Right. So I can only imagine this actress recording her lines and going, I wonder what this is kind of about. And then seeing this film that had to be a somewhat horrifying experience for her. I think. Yeah, this was uh, yeah. And uh, her name is uh, Tara strong. She's done a lot of voice work. And the other tragedy is that I just remember when I first heard about this, I was like, oh, wow, they got Mark Hamill back. They got Kevin Conroy to do the voice of Batman again. So I just remember thinking, well, they got they got the A-list voice cast this time. Yep. And uh, I'm just kind of judging everybody involved in this. I, I, I do think it's – they wasted a lot of talent that probably 
if they had known fully what this story was going to look like when it was done, I don't know that they would have been as excited about doing it. I mean, I think it's pretty easy to say like, you know, there was a lot of questions when this book came out about whether or not Batman killed Joker at the end. And there was this like, wow, did he do it? Like, is that, is that what really happened? And so it got all this attention and it sort of became this iconic story, um, in the, in the Batman universe. Um, obviously like you've expressed, not your favorite and not my favorite either, but it became iconic. And so for people who I think said, Oh, they're going to create this movie. And like we, we talked about if they had just created the movie, yeah, there'd be problems with Barbara's character, but they just tacked on more. And so I can see how as a, as an actor getting involved in the project, you would not have even seen this coming. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's shocking on multiple levels. Yeah. Yeah. So that concludes all the questions that I had. Um, obviously you and I are pretty much on the same page with this particular film. Anything else that you'd add? No, I, I have said my piece on this one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, me too. I, I, I'm good to go. Um, I had, uh, I saw this with a friend. I think I told you this story. I saw this with a friend and, um, who's a huge Batman fan. Um, and when I, after, after seeing it, uh, we, he basically looked at me and he's like, I don't want to talk about this on a podcast. (laughs) 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 And so, so I said, you know what? I'll, I will, uh, I'll call up Tim because, uh, you're, you're so far, you're like my go-to rated R movie (laughs) podcaster. (laughs) Yeah, no, but you've been, you've been amazing. So it's been great to hear, uh, your, your opinions on the movies and I appreciate you coming on. Well, thank you. It's always a pleasure. Yeah. And we'll do, we'll do another one soon. That's, uh, not rated R and that, uh, we really love. (laughs) Cool. Cool. All right. Thanks, Tim. All right. Thanks. Well, there you have it. Our breakdown of the animated movie and the comic book of DC's the killing joke. What do you think? Leave us a comment or shoot us an email at reclamationsociety at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you and get your take on the film. You might disagree with us. You might agree with us. We'd love to know either way. A couple more items. Um, Please review this podcast. Reviews help us get heard by others. If you have a second, please give us a review on iTunes. That would be fantastic. If you haven't yet, go to www.reclamationsociety.org and watch Star Wars Rivals. And if you like it, please share it. Finally... If you would like to support us financially and help us um, get more people to be a part of our community, please go to ReclamationSociety.org and click on the Give link. Thanks for listening, and as always, question everything and seek the truth.